now listening to Grace City Portland. If you have a Bible, please grab it. Um, if you'd like to borrow one of ours, we have some boxes in the little aisles here. You can, you can snatch an NIV paperback out of one of those boxes. And guys, so heads up, uh, we're going to cover quite a bit of ground this morning. Um, I know some of you are like, yes, like more Bible, the better. Like, I'm with you. Some of you are like, oh, okay, like... You tell me I have to think? Yes, yes, you're going to think, we're going to read, we're going to reason together from the scriptures. Um, but I do realize in a gathering like this, this isn't like where, you know, this is not a seminary lecture you've come to, this is a sermon. And I try to keep it under 45 minutes, but occasionally, depending upon where we're at in our, in our study, in our sermon series, we're going, going to need to cover quite a bit, and it's going to feel a bit more like a, a seminary lecture than perhaps a 30-minute sermon. So I hope you're okay with that. You've been warned. Um, we're going to begin in the book of Exodus, starting in verse, no, chapter, chapter 19, verses 1 to 8. We're actually going to cover three substantial chunks of scripture. Um, I'm going to say a few words in between those, and then, and then we'll go from there. Oh, by the way, so that's where we're at. Little context, if you're just jumping into Grace City this morning, we're actually week five in a whole series of sermons um, that I've been giving over the last month and a half to do with uh, God's people's journey through the wilderness. Um, if you start in, in the book of Exodus, God delivered his people, Israel, the descendants of Abraham from slavery in this, this nation, Egypt, this oppressive nation, Egypt. He sets them free. They cross the Red Sea and they begin this journey through the wilderness to ultimately get to the land that God had promised their father Abraham centuries and centuries before. So it's like this picture of God saving his people and then taking them on a journey to his kingdom, to the place that he's prepared for them. It's our story as followers of Jesus. Um, and in fact, the, um, one of the, the main authors of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the book of Cor- uh, in first letter to the church in Corinth, the book of First Corinthians, he uses this story as an example to to teach followers of Jesus, i.e., like New Testament Christians. So this is the context. This is where we've been. This morning, we're actually making it to Mount Sinai. You could argue this is kind of the pinnacle of the journey, or well, the promised land, I suppose, would be the pinnacle, but the, this is Mount Sinai. This is the place, this is the moment where God gives his people his law. This is a really, really big deal in the life of this nation we know as Israel. So that's where we're at. Exodus, and we're calling it, are we there yet? Exodus 19, verses 1 to 8. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, um, if you do the math, you're talking about 48 days. On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Verse three, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called out to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, 
and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on wings like eagles or eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, or priestly kings, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Next slide, please. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all of these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Pause there. You know what this is? This is a picture of divine wedding ceremony. This is what this is. This is finally addressing his people at the very place where he had told Moses, go and rescue my people. Command Moses to let my people go that they might go to the mountain of God and worship me there. They've arrived. They're at the place. And it's this, this magical moment where God says, finally, my people, the ones who I've rescued, you're mine. And if you'll trust me, listen to me and obey me as, as your God, have I not proven myself faithful? I've, I've rescued you. I've provided for you. I've brought you thus far. Now, if you'll obey me, that is, if you'll continue to trust me, then you will be my treasured possession in all of the earth. And the people said, I do. Israel becomes God's bride. This is where that whole imagery begins, right here. It's a picture of God rescuing his beloved and calling Israel into this covenant relationship, a marriage, as it were, with himself. Now, Exodus 20, this is what happens next. Um, Let's go ahead and go there. Oh, by the way, this is what we're talking about today. I, you know, I figured Christmas is right around the corner. We should probably talk about idolatry, relapse, and God of the breakthrough. Next slide. All right. So after, after that little moment, after all the people said, we will, We trust our God will do whatever he says. We want this. We want this covenant. We want to obey God. We want to be his faithful bride. So whatever he says, we will do. And God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for the Lord your God, for I am the Lord your God and I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation and to to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments." This is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Next slide. 
So he goes through all the Ten Commandments, which that's, that's another talk for another time. And at the end of that, it says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flash of the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. So this is, this is an intense moment. And trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. It's just, it's too intense. God speaks, people are like, I'm just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die. I cannot take it, it's too much, it's too powerful. So they said, Moses, you, you go, you, you listen, you get the note, you bring it back to us. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, this is very interesting, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So this is three days later now. Three days later, which is the 50th day since God's people have left Egypt, they've now entered into this covenant with God. God has given his people the 10 commandments or the 10 words, his law. By the end of the, uh, the 10th, as we've just read, the people are like, look, at, I'm, I'm out. They're ready to tap out. Too much. He cannot endure the voice of God. I mean, this is just, this is terrifying. Moses, you go. Whatever God says, you, you bring it back and, and we'll obey. We promise. So Moses goes up the mountain. And as uh, many of you probably know the story, he spends days up on the top of this mountain as God elaborates on the details of this covenant that he's just formed with his people. 40 days. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever made a serious promise? Mm -hmm. Have you ever made a serious promise uh, to God? Some of you are like, yes, absolutely, I can remember it. Have you ever broken a promise to God? Hmm. How does that feel? What's about to happen next is just that. What's about to happen next is so mind-boggling mind-boggling, tragic, and confusing, and, and unthinkable, that it really, it, it, it makes you wonder, what is wrong with us humans? What is our problem that we struggle so much to be faithful, to make promises, and to keep them even to God? Um, what's about to happen next, and I, I'm not trying to be shocking or sound gross at all, but it's akin to a husband and a wife getting married, and before the ink on the marriage certificate even dries, the groom walks in on his bride with another man. That, that's, that's the picture that's being painted. That's about what's, that's, that's what's about to happen next. 
They've just said their I do's. Their vows have been made. Their declarations exchanged. The people said, we do. Whatever you say, we want this relationship. We know you're faithful. We know you're good. We know that we'll never, ever do any better than Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. We want to enter into this covenant with you. We want to trust you. We want to be your treasured possession. We do. And in a matter of 40 days, Israel manages to break, at the very least, the first two commandments that they just swore an oath to. Let's read the story. This is Exodus 32 now. Okay, so 40 days later, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. We just read that God had went before them. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Verse 2, so Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's a direct quote from the very first line of the ten words, the ten commandments that God just spoke to his people. Next slide. When Aaron saw this, this calf, this golden calf, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse seven, and the Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. So this is like classic parent talk, like when the kids misbehave. And I talk, talk to my wife, you got to do something about your kids. <laughs> For your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is what we call idolatry. It's classic idolatry. Now, I don't, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time defining idolatry. I, I think it's pretty obvious what it is. Um, it, it's a very quick definition. It's simply when you take something or someone and put it before God. So God is God, so by definition, God is the only one that we should worship. He is the one who we look to as our ultimate source of authority, life, sustenance, protection. At the end of the day, we worship him because we recognize the fact that all good things come from him. So we worship him. We worship other things, whether intentionally or not, we, in effect, are calling those things are gods. And when you worship something else that's not a god, that's simply called worshiping an idol or idolatry. Now, I know it sounds extremely ancient and archaic, but we do it all the time, right? 
you know this, right? And I'm not, I don't mean to say that in a trite way, like, oh, we all do it. Like, no, it's, it's a really, really big deal, but it's not just this weird archaic thing that they used to do because clearly no one's building golden calves around here. And yet we still put other things, people, circumstances, situations, even sometimes fears above our concern for God. We focus our attention on other things above God. So that's, it's, it's a human phenomenon. We, it was John Calvin who famously said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. It's just it's something, something on the inside of us that's constantly looking for some kind of God to worship. What is the nature of, of this idolatry. I want to break this down a little bit. I want, to, I want us to see how this maps on to our situation, our contemporary situation here in Portland. So first of all, uh, three things about the nature of Israel's idolatry. Um, verse one, it says, if we can go back one slide, please. It says, uh, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered uh, Aaron to themselves and they said, get up. Make us an idol. Now say that, but make us make us something we can worship. We need a God that can that can continue to lead us forward. Their idolatry is initially born out of impatience. They're just like, look, we've been standing around for forty days. As far as we know, Moses like went back to Egypt. Up, make for us new gods. Verse two. They fashioned, out of the, they fashioned this idol out of the gifts given to them by God himself. You ever wondered where did a bunch of like runaway Egyptian slaves get enough gold to fashion like a, a, a golden calf out of? If you go back to, we won't flip there, but Exodus chapter 12 verse 35, it says that when when Pharaoh finally relented and said, fine, go. It says that God caused the Egyptians to show favor towards his people. And it says, whatever you ask them for, they'll give it to you. So go crazy. So they actually leave with clothing, with jewelry, with all sorts of gold and silver that God himself provided for them by the hands of their enemies. So how ironic is it that Israel, God's people, are using the very gifts that God gave them to form an idol to worship instead of him. And then thirdly, this is verse five, it said that they were going to declare a feast for the Lord. Um, In the name of God, they claimed to be feasting in honor it says, tomorrow we shall feast to the Lord. Now, this one's a bit more subtle. There's all sorts of back and forth debate and conversation between theologians and commentators about, like, well, what really is the nature of Israel's rebellion here? Are they, is this, is this breaking commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me, or is this commandment two, you shall not make a graven image? Now, you could say it's a bit of both, right? Some will argue that, no, it's not actually idolatry because they they were doing this kind of worship, but 
for the Lord. They, they did this thing, they made it, so okay, great, this is our God, but we're gonna, tomorrow we're going to declare a feast and we're gonna use this thing that we've just made as a means of worshiping the Lord, their God, the God that they know just rescued them out of Egypt. And so there's some like ambiguity there. Like, well, what, what is really happening here? And I would explain it like this. We all have the propensity to justify our idolatry. Rarely do we say, look, I'm gonna use the gifts that God has given me. I've run out of patience, so I'm gonna use all of the good stuff that he's given me and use it to worship Lucifer. Because that'll, obviously, that'll just be the, the much better alternative. Or I'm just gonna like become a Satanist, I'm gonna begin worshiping demons. Like that's not what's happening here, but that is totally what's happening here. Because we have a really bad tendency to justify our idolatry. You know what I'm talking about? Preach. I'm gonna preach. I am preaching. (laughs) So what does idolatry look like in your world, in our world? Number one, it's born out of impatience. Typically, I'm going to speak generally here, but typically, um, if you've ever set out to, to put your faith in Jesus, to follow him, to submit to his good rule and authority, um, you may have experienced the, the fact that it doesn't happen like, like that. There's a timing to it. There's a patience required in fact, in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. It, there's this patience factor, and as humans, I would say especially in our world today, really, really struggle to like cope with. We're not patient at all. Now, when you get older, you know, you get, get a bit grumpier and like myself, and you, you tend to like, it's easy to get a bit like ranty and like, oh, you know, the kids today, they're just all about speed. And that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, I'm all for microwaves and I, I like things to come to me fast, right? But when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to trusting him and obeying him, applying his values, his ways of doing things to my relationships, to my morality, uh, to, to what I do with my money or don't do with my money. Um, you know, like the, the practical stuff of life. It, there tends to be a process, a journey, and it doesn't just happen overnight. We're often promised that overnight success is out there. And let's, let's be real, I, I reckon it is in a way. Like, I mean, if things go viral like that and all of a sudden you're like, man, they got rich, they got famous, they got successful like that. And so it seems attainable. But it would seem that God doesn't play that game. And so it requires us to be patient. But we're not patient, so typically our idolatry. We're like, you know what, try the God thing. Um, God, God probably just needs my help kind of speed things up a little bit. His ways seem to be slightly uh, slow ways. Let's, 
let's kick it up a notch. And so our idolatry is also born out of impatience. Secondly, your idolatry, my idolatry, will always leave a money trail. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to know, if you want to, you want to determine the potential idols in your life, follow your fortune. Trace your treasure. Look at your checkbook or your account or whatever. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also are the words of Jesus. We take the treasure that he's given us and we use it to make an idol of it. We're no different from the ancient Israelites. You wanna know what your idol is? You wanna know where your trust lies? Just follow the money, follow the cash, and I can almost guarantee you, you'll find an idol. I remember uh, I had a very, very bold conversation with a really, really close friend of mine one time. And it was one of those conversations where like, it, like as it begun, I remember thinking to myself, why on earth am I, am I even like bringing this up? Because th- this, could, this could put major strain on our relationship. We were talking about money. Already like a bad conversation to have with a friend. And then I started asking him, so like, what, what do you, like in terms of God and your faith in Jesus and all that stuff, like what is, how does money factor in to that for you? And he was like, I, I don't know, you know, like I love Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get that. But um, in terms of like, your money, what, how does that work into it? Because, you know, like I, I like to buy nice stuff for my friends and my wife. And, and so you can see where this conversation's going. And finally, I'm like, well, we've gone this far. So I said, well, let me just ask you this way. If you opened up your online bank account, would there be any indication whatsoever, financially speaking, that you value God more than anything or anyone else in your life? And at that point, I was like, okay, this is it. Either I've just lost a friend, or God, please, please just do something with these very awkward words of mine. And the Holy Spirit, he, it would seem, convicted his heart. And he said, you know, he got really quiet, and he said, you know what? That's, that's true. That's, that's logically, I, I can't argue with that. And so he started giving. He started giving. He said, yeah, you're right. I don't want to just say my trust in Jesus. I don't want to just say that Jesus is my all without actually figuring out what that looks like practically. So he realigned his treasure to align with his true God. Amen. By the way, let me, let me just say this before I forget. You guys are such a generous church. Um, we've, we've been doing this partnership with the elementary school down the road, Boise Elliott Humboldt Elementary School, the school with three names. Um, we, uh, we did a bit of collection, big collection. You guys were super generous. We collected just over, I think, close to $1,600, which we're giving all to the, the kids and their families um, at the school there. And we, we collected about 300 pounds worth of non-perishable food items. So $1,600, 300 pounds of food. Yeah. Guys, that's super cool. 
for like a church our size, like that's, that just blesses me to no end. So thank you for being so generous. Um, you know, when we talk about money, obviously there's the, you know, it's, it's like having that conversation with my friend. My fear is that some of you here will be like, oh, I'm, I hate this church. I'm out of here. Like friendship over. And you know, so be it. If that's, I hope that's not how you feel, but you know, eventually we got to go there. Uh, but I, more than anything, I just want to simply say, guys, I'm so blessed that we are a generous church and that we do give and we give beyond just our own little, little, little worlds. So thank you for doing that. Um, yeah, myself, Caleb, and Casey Smith actually loaded up all the food, drove it down to the school uh, Friday night, got to meet some of the people there. Their whole, like, what was the cafeteria, the gym was just like piled full of food. Um, I think we were the only church. We talked to the vice president of the PTA there, and she's like, oh, who are you guys? I'm like, oh, we're with this church. She's like, oh, a church? Yeah, we're that church. (laughs) So hopefully only the beginning of of a long-term relationship. Third thing about idolatry in our world. Um, I've already kind of alluded to it. We always look for ways to justify our idol-worshiping tendencies. You know, we, we, do, we pursue, pursue careers or we, we handle our money. We do things, and often we'll say stuff like, well, I'm doing it for God. I'm doing it for God. Like, my vision is to glorify God through doing this. Which may be true or may just be like, dude, stop lying to yourself. Like, call it what it is. Call it what it is. If God has led you to amass a fortune and to utilize those finances uh, to bless others in need, um, which is totally a Jesus thing to do, awesome. I'm not trying to like question your motives. I, I just want to help us all to be like honest with ourselves because it is this human thing. We have this propensity to justify idolatry. And we, and like the Israelites, will say, yeah, I know. Let's make an idol and we'll use it to have a feast to Yahweh. And God's like, eh, no, stop playing games. Stop lying. Call it what it is. You got impatient and you wanted to do it your way. So what'd you do? You built it. You know what they did? What is the golden calf from? It's probably, and you can Google this yourself, but it's probably something they brought with them from Egypt. In fact, there's one of the, the, the creation god in Egypt, Ptah is his name. You can Google it. He apparently rode on a golden ox. That was his like steed. And it's entirely likely that they thought, oh, well, Yahweh is our creation god, Maybe he just needs us to build him like a, a vehicle, and then we can get going. We just need to kind of help God, and, we, and it's all perfectly justified, and totally not. So, we're a lot like them. Okay, what's the good news? What is the good news? How do we overcome the temptation to make idols out of everything in our lives? How do we deal with the idol factories that are our human hearts? Why does it even matter? Let, let, me, let me address this just very quickly. What are the repercussions 
Like what ended up happening to Israel? Is it, is it all that bad? If everyone's doing it, is it, is it that bad? Yeah, I got an idol, you got an idol. Ah, come on, like, let's not get religious. <laughs> right? No, let's totally get religious. No, let's just be real. Let's just be real, okay? It is actually a really, really bad thing. What are the repercussions? Um, I'll say two things very quickly. In Exodus 33, um, this is what happens. God says, I'm a jealous God. First of all, idolatry, it's not this sort of like abstract spiritual thing. It's a deeply personal thing. Relationship with God is, is, is embedded from page one all the way to the end. And not this sort of abstract sort of relationship where I've got your rules and I apply them and somehow I call that a relationship. No, it's, it's the kind of relationship that's best likened to a marriage. It's like a marriage. And if the bride is unfaithful, God is saying, look, you need to understand, think, think of me as a jealous God. If you cheat on me, if you're unfaithful to me, if you break your vows to me, it's going to break my heart. It will make me angry. Angry. Because I'm a jealous God. Secondly, in Exodus 33, God says, you know what? Fine. You don't want to trust me. You don't want to be my treasured possession. You don't want to obey me. You don't want to follow me. Fine. It says in verse uh, three, chapter 33, verse three, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. You're so dang stubborn. Better that you go ahead, figure this out without me, because that's clearly what you want, but I'm gonna stay here, and I'm gonna start over. Idolatry results in God saying, if you don't want me to be your God, so be it. Go on. Go ahead. If you don't want me to go with you, I'll stay right here. That's really, really bad news. That's terrible news. When Moses heard that, he fell on his face and began to cry out for God's people. He says, don't, no, 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 please, please, anything but that. How, how, will we be, how will it be known that we are your people unless you go with us? How will we actually conquer giants unless you're with us? And here's the thing about idols in our lives, guys. God has not rescued us to simply watch us kill time while we wait to die and go to heaven. God has rescued us so that through us, he might restore peace and love and unity and everything that's good and from God's heart to the world. We're meant to be vessels of his power, of his loving kindness, of his grace, of his truth, of all of these things that's broken in the world but God wants to restore. And if God doesn't go with us, then we mustn't into thinking for one second. They're like, yeah, yeah, we're good. Like, we'll do it. You won't. You'll get our little diagrams on the other side here. We'll get to the spies. We'll take one look at the giants and say, oh, snap, God, where are you? 
We'll get to that point in our marriage where everything's falling apart and feeling impossible. And then we'll need to know, is God my God? Or if I somehow replaced him with fake God slash idol. When I'm believing for my child who's sick in the hospital, who's potentially about to take his last breath, and now I'm crying out to God, not fake gold image God, not pretend God that I've created in my mind, but I need to know that the God who in fact upholds the universe by the word of his power is with me. And if I've created a false God, a fake God, if I've given in to the temptation to worship an idol, then when push comes to shove and I need to be present in my life, I have a problem if I abandon him once upon a time. So there's a lot at stake. There's everything at stake. And so how do we overcome? Let's get to the good news. Three things. How to overcome the temptation to make idols out of everything. Number one, fear God. Number two, flee from would-be idols. And number three, number two, flee. Number three, be filled with the Spirit of God. Come on. Fear God, flee from would-be idols, and be filled with the Spirit of God. Exodus 20, 20, I, I, I highlighted it as we were reading through it. Moses says, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that you may fear him. That you may be fe- fear him before you, that you may not sin. Oftentimes as, as Christians, uh, not Old Testament uh, believers in Yahweh, not, not Jewish people, but Christians who have found salvation in Jesus, not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything that he has done. We, we, we find it difficult to place the fear of God in the greater category of grace and love and patience and kindness. And, and typically we have this, this, we tend to like, well, it's, I can't figure out how I can fear God and be completely like caught up in his love. And so we tend to sort of overemphasize one at the expense of the other. And I want to emphasize, and I have emphasized, and I will continue to emphasize that God's um, severity, his um, ability to actually punish his children, to discipline his kids, those who he loves, is not in opposition to his grace, his patience, his loving kindness. We read that, that he will visit the iniquities on the third and fourth generation. By the way, if you got a little hung up on like, how is God going to punish the kids of the parents who sinned? Ezekiel 18 is a great go-to to understand. That, in fact, God's not saying he's going to punish, he's not going to punish Isaac when I sin, my nine-year-old boy. Ezekiel 18 does a great job at clarifying that. But God says he will visit the iniquities in the third and fourth generation, and he'll be faithful to bless the thousandth generation. Both of those things. In fact, God is faithful to his promise to Abraham to see his people all the way through the wilderness until they enter into the promised land, but he doesn't let the sin of the first generation go unpunished. And remember, you're thinking, oh, what? You're, but this is Old Testament. No, this is... 
This is the exact example that Paul uses in his letter to the church in Corinth. New Testament, grace. He says, be warned, don't make the mistake of God's people in the wilderness who gave in to idolatry. And a whole lot of people died. It was tragic. And I'm convinced that God doesn't stand back and like wring his hands thinking, ha, I feel better now. No, it breaks his heart. It grieves, just as it says that God was grieved to the heart when he had to flood the world because the sin of man, the evil of humanity had become so rampant, the only just thing to do, the only merciful thing to do was just to wipe the whole thing out, spare a family and start over. And so we need to fear God. He says, don't fear the repercussions of the lightning and the thunder and the darkness. Fear God himself. Jesus said in, what was it, Matthew um, 10, 28, do not fear those who can kill the body only and cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It is right to fear the Lord. He is an awesome God. His power is terrifying. We need to fear God because it's the fear of him, not the fear of punishment, not the fear of the consequences of my sin. John says that perfect love casts out all fear. Doesn't mean I stop fearing God. It means I stop fearing what's gonna go terribly wrong in my life by sin. I fear God because he is an awesome God and the only one just and able to execute justice and to punish even his children when we are determined to undermine him because he is loving. Fear God, number two, flee from would-be idols. This is the conclusion, again, the First Corinthians 10 reference when Paul's writing to the church who, and they're like, they're really, really struggling. I mean, they're a mess. And he says, remember God's children in the wilderness. He says, be warned. Use them as an example. Flee from idolatry. Like, run away. And he says, and if you think you can stand, beware lest you too fall. If you think, no, I got this. I got this under control. Just a little sip here, a little toke there. No big deal. Jesus is still Lord, and you think that somehow this sort of sin you're dabbling with, this line you're tiptoeing up to, you've got it under control. Guys, don't be silly. Don't be dumb. Flee. Run away. And don't just run like out into the middle of the desert. Run to God. (laughs) Run to God. Let me tell you something. Idolatry, it's like heroin. Because... I've got so much experience smoking heroin. I've never smoked heroin. I don't even think you smoke heroin. (laughs) It's a drug. It's an opiate. It's awesome and it will kill you. And if you're gonna get, if you're gonna break an addiction, if you're gonna break out of the cycle of idolatry in your life, you can't just run arbitrarily away from it You've got to have a better drug. You've got to have a better God. Idols are lame. They're, they're shiny. It's like when you go to the Thai restaurant and they've got all that super cool, shiny like little idols there, like real little idols. And I don't know if you ever tried picking one of them up. 
when the cashier's not looking. I just did this last week, and I'm like, wow, that's surprisingly light. Because it's totally fake. There's nothing, it's just like a piece of plastic. That is the nature of idols. There's nothing there. It will leave you empty and dry. Flee from idolatry and run into the arms of Jesus. He's better. Get strung out on Jesus. Come on, take a hit. Puff, puff, pass. Sorry. Sorry, I'm relapsing. Sorry. Get like cotton mouth. No, I shouldn't. I shouldn't even joke. I've got. I've got. I've got some very strong convictions about the recreational use of marijuana. I'll be. I'll be real, you guys. I, I think it's sin. I think it's sin. And I. It's another conversation. I'll tell you exactly why. I've thought it through theologically, and I have my personal experience. I think the recreational use of marijuana is a sin. I joke, but it's actually, I think it's sin. I really do. Another conversation. Flee. And then thirdly, and this is is the most important component, be filled with the Spirit of God. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, but that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. I was having a conversation uh, a couple weeks ago at your guys' wedding. Um, one of your lovely guests there asked me, uh, she said, oh, are you a Spirit-filled church? Which is a question that always makes me slightly nervous. I'm like, do you want us to be a Spirit-filled church? Like, <laughs> trying to feel it out, like, is it a good thing? Like, are you asking because you're afraid we're weird or because you just really want more of the Holy Spirit? Um, and she wouldn't like really let on. I was like, you, and you could tell that she could tell I was totally dancing around it. She's like, well, we're just, do, you, do you not know what it means? I'm like, no, I totally know what it means. Like, and I said, okay, yes, I'll just say it. We are, but let me qualify. What I mean by that isn't like we're not crazy, wild, out of control, charismania, just, you know, all running around screaming in tongues. Like, uh, we do believe that as we gather, the spirit of God is real and present. That God, the spirit of Christ, actually indwells the heart of a believer. And this, this, this is, because this makes all the difference in the world. I think we'll make the mistake of trying to get a breakthrough I reckon in the last 47 minutes, you may have thought to yourself, what is my idol? What is my relapse pattern? What do I keep kind of lying to myself about and yet keep coming back to only to fail, be convicted, and think I'm going to redouble my efforts, I'll do better, I'll be a better Christian, and then you just go round and round and round again. You think, man, I tried to like muster up the morality. I've tried to do the right thing. I've listened to more podcasts. I've memorized more Bible verses, all super good things. But I just kind of keep going round and round and round, which if we had another 47 minutes, we, we would talk about the phenomenon of relapse and how this is not an isolated event. This is the whole story of Israel's journey through the wilderness. This is why they end up wasting 40 years 
a generation plus of time because they go around and around and around. And even after they get God's law inscribed by God himself on stone tablets, they keep relapsing into idolatry. They do it all the way up until they're, they're right on the border of the promised land. They're just about to cross over the Jordan. They're on the plains of Moab. And what do they do? They start worshiping the sex gods of the Moabites. Like right before they're about to cross over. It says Moses himself didn't even end up crossing over. Eventually Moses dies and it says Joshua succeeded him. Joshua is an interesting character. You know, if you do a study of all of the characters in scripture, I've not done an exhaustive uh, study, but here's one thing I've noticed about Joshua. Most of the characters obviously have character flaws. Every single one of them is like, well, Moses was like an anger-holic. He was a rageaholic. He was, you know, Noah. I mean, he was awesome. He was righteous, but he had a bit of a, you know, a bit of a wino, and something weird went on between him and his son. Don't really know what that's all about. And, uh, and like all of these righteous characters also have incredible character flaws, which is actually super encouraging. Joshua is unique. There's nothing in scripture about Joshua's righteous, but he's this, this enigma, Yeshua is the Hebrew pronunciation for, for his name. I would argue that Joshua in himself is a type of theophany. He's a picture of God in Christ to come. When Moses, the man through whom God gave the law, passed on, it was Joshua, the one who refused to leave the tent because he just couldn't get enough of God's presence, remained there, worshiping Yahweh. When the man who gave the law had passed on, it was the next leader. It was Joshua who would take God's people to the promised land, the one who simply needed more of God's presence, who was the new leader of God's people. Which is why Jesus said that the true worshipers of God, those who truly know and worship God, as Father, will worship him in truth and in spirit. It's not enough just to know the precepts. It's not enough just to know what one ought to do. It's not enough just to have the law. Like, I know I'm not supposed to murder. I know that. That's, that's definitely one of the ten. I know I'm not supposed to lie. I know I'm not supposed to look at another person's wife with, like, lust. I know all of that. My heart occasionally forgets it. Because in my heart, I'm a liar, I'm an adulterer, and I'm a murderer. And without the spirit of God that regenerates my heart, that cuts away that old calloused flesh that seems to infect the human heart, I will forever fail trying to honor God and worship him as my true God. And so Moses, he spoke of the day when after God's people would forsake him again and again and again, eventually God would judge his people so severely that he would use another hostile nation, even worse than Egypt, to come in and take his people out of the land that he had promised them. 
because they would just not relent from worshiping idols. Even then, Moses said, but God will be faithful to the thousandth generation. He made a promise to Abraham that he will not break. And no matter how hard you try, you cannot trump God's faithfulness. And Moses said, and a day will come when God will bring you home and he will circumcise your heart. It'll no longer be an external observance of the the law covenant, but God, by his spirit, will come and give you a new heart. He will inscribe his law on your hearts. This is Jeremiah, this is Ezekiel, this is Joel. This is the prophets all foretelling the day when God would come and be with us. You guys know it's Christmas in about a week and a half? I had to tie it in somehow. Can we stand together, please? Thank you, Hannah. I kept trying to think, how can I like cut this sermon to maybe four or five parts? And I obviously just couldn't think of a way. But the thing I want to emphasize, the thing I want all of us to, to go away here with is that Idolatry is a real thing. It's this weird human phenomenon. And when we give into it, it wrecks our life. It short circuits the beautiful things that God wants to do in and through our lives. There is a way to overcome it because God is a God of breakthrough. We're not destined to just wander around in circles for 40 years. We must fear our God. We must realize that he is a jealous God and he's not going to stand by while his bride just messes around with affairs and, and other stupid things. Number two, we need to get serious about running away from the sin in our lives. We need to flee idolatry. And you might need one or two trusted friends in your lives that can like, you know, we, get, we do these stupid things where it's like we're about to sin and in your mind you're like, oh my gosh, I'm about to sin. I'm about to do it again. Uh, I don't care. At that moment, you might need someone to come right up to you and be like, run! (laughs) Just run to Jesus. And then we need to be filled with the Spirit of God over and over and over. We need to be Jesus addicts. Constantly being filled with the Spirit of God because you'll never ever break out of that cycle of addiction unless you've got a better drug and Jesus is the best. He's the best God. Let's get just belligerent in the greater one. Let's know his love because then ultimately it's freedom. It's freedom running into the arms of our good God. Father, thank you.